Praise God. Well, we've been talking over the last number of weeks, really as a preparation for discussing what God's call for this church is. We've just been talking about the fact that Jesus chose us. John chapter 15, we're not going to go back there. Jesus is one of the last things he said to his disciples is you need to understand this. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And then he told them why he chose them. And I ordained you, which means I set you aside so that you could bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So it's not just to bear fruit, but it's fruit that lasts, fruit that remains. That word means to, to stay, to be lasting. And then we've been looking at what did he do when he called them? How did he choose them? And we went back into Matthew chapter 4. It's interesting because a number of different uh, teachings that I've heard throughout the last few weeks, just sometimes on the radio and sometimes somewhere else, are, are about this same theme right now, follow me and choosing us. And I really believe the Spirit of God, is, it, is his, it is the time. We've all known it. We all know about it. We've done it to some degree. But I really believe there's a, what the Bible calls, there's, there's one of the words for time in the New Testament is the Greek word kairos, which means an appointed time. When God has appointed a time to do something. And when He does it, it's going to happen. Now, that whether we're part of it or not, it's up to us. But He's going to do it. And I believe that's where we are. And this is, this is an, an appointed moment in time for which you are called while you're on the earth at this particular time. You could have been born in any other time. You could have been born, you know, somebody, I wish I was around when Jesus was walking on the earth. No, the Bible tells us that the people that lived then were looking forward to the day that you and I are in now. And funny how the grass is always greener. But they had a sense of what's coming that we lose sight of sometimes because we get so involved in what's going on around us, the news, and none of it's, almost none of it's good, and we just get discouraging, and oh my goodness. But that's why we're here. We're here because there's an assignment that we have. And Jesus was communicating this, so we were looking at how he chose these disciples, and we saw in Matthew 4, the first thing he says is, come follow me. He didn't say, join a group. I'm starting a movement. He said, personal relationship. You, follow me. We talked about that in order to follow him, they had to leave where they were and what they had, what they trusted in to follow him. Second thing he says, and I will make you into something. So we can't make ourselves into it. All our job is to do is to follow him. If we follow him, he'll make us into what he wants us to be. doesn't mean there aren't things we have to do because he gave them assignments, but he'll do the job. He'll do the changing. He'll do the work inside of you. And then he said, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. And that's what we've been looking at. What does it mean to be a fisher of men? We looked in John chapter 4 and we saw an example in Jesus of how he fished a woman, a Samaritan woman. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that a little later on this morning. Fish, talking in this relationship with this Samaritan woman, in this conversation with her, by the time he's finished, an entire village is saved. Why? Not because he went there and did a huge evangelistic crusade, although that's what ended up happening, but it came, he went there to do that because they invited him. It started out because he just met a woman and began to talk with her and allow the Spirit of God to lead the conversation. And so we've talked about that. We've talked about what, that, that, that we are adequate, not in ourselves. We've looked in Second Corinthians chapter 3 and said that the glory of God has been deposited in us. God recognizing that we're earthen vessels or cracked pots. <laughs> and the cracks are so the light can shine out of it. But we've got to let it out. And then last week we looked at the assignment. 
which is Romans chapter 10, where Paul says that, that how can the way people come to Christ, the way they come to be saved, is because they have to believe in Him. But how can they believe unless they hear the truth? And how can they hear unless we go and declare it to them? And how can we go and declare it to them unless we're sent? And then we ended by looking at this strange story, not strange, but this interesting story, insightful story in Romans cha- in uh, Acts chapter 10 of, of, of a man named Cornelius. Remember he was over here? <clears throat> he was in Caesarea. And Peter was over here in Joppa. Remember that? And, and, and God sends an angel in answer to in answer to Cornelius' prayer, crying out, basically, what do I have to do to be saved? The angel says, go send for the men over here to Joppa, because there's a man there who can come and tell you how to do it. So an angel appears to him in answer of it, in, to, to Cornelius. Peter has a vision, and God speaks to him out of that vision, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, there's man's going to send to you, go with him. Don't worry that he's a Gentile, because I don't have any partiality. Go to him and tell him the things he needs to hear. And we end up by saying, wait a minute. If God sends an angel to answer Cornelius, why doesn't the angel tell him what he's got to do to be saved? And if God can send a vision to Peter, why doesn't he just send the vision to Cornelius? Because God has ordained that the word of life, God has ordained that the gospel is to be communicated by us to others. See, God did not put His glory, God did not put His treasure in angels. He put His treasure in clay pots. Because you look at an angel and an angel says, God's merciful. You look at an angel, why does he need mercy? How does he, what does he know about mercy? But you look at you and me and our lives and what God's done in us, we're testimonies of His mercy. It's the cracks. It's the chips that God uses to show, I'll put my grace, my love, my presence in people just like you if you'll just come. And that's how God is ordained to do it. We've talked about as fishers of men... The, the, the fishermen, now we're, talking about, we're not talking about those that go out and cast nets. We'll talk about them later. But we're talking about just one-on-one fishing. That you use a hook. Because you need the hook to catch the fish and bring it in. We talked last time that no fish is ever going to come and bite on a rusty old barbed hook. What would attract a fish? Why would a fish want to bite into a hook? that's barbed. They won't. So you've got to put something on it called bait. Oh, you're all fishermen, right. You've got to put something on it called bait. And the way you choose the bait is something that the fish is going to want to eat. So it has to be something that's attractive to the fish. Not just attractive that the fish sits there and admires it and says, oh, what a lovely worm. No, there's something about that bait that excites the senses of the fish that the fish needs. So if the fish is hungry, the bait has to be something that the fish wants to eat to satisfy its need. And we ask the question, what is there about your life or my life that's attracting people to us that want what we have? 
Or are we instead casting out into our lives barbed hooks? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What's the right bait to hook on the hook? And the hook is your life. Because we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul says that, that the letter that God has written to the world is written in us. The gospel is it may be in that Bible, but the gospel they'll read is written in you and written in me. And the question is, what are they reading? If it's just written inside of me and it never comes out, they can't read it. It's like a book in the bookshelf. doesn't do anybody any good. And so we talked last week, we have to open our mouth. We have to begin to let it out. And if you just open your mouth and begin to step outside your comfort zone, you'll find the Spirit of God is there. The glory. See, you don't have to do the work. You just have to take the message. Yeah, that's it. Come on. Hallelujah. When Peter took the message to Cornelius and told him what he knew, the Spirit of God fell and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But Peter had to go and speak. He had to open his mouth. He had to let the light out. You're not the light. You contain the light. So the question is, what is the bait? What is the bait that the world needs? What do people need more than anything else? They don't need to know what you know or I know. They don't need to know theology. They don't need to know what they really need more than anything else is to be loved and accepted. The most basic human foundational need is to be loved accepted, and then secondly, to have value. That's the basic foundation that we need, that we crave. What's underneath, what's underneath almost all kinds of sin that's out there, all kinds of bondages, all kinds of things that the enemy uses as traps are devices that the world offers to satisfy that need. And the reason people, oh, bite that hook is because they have that need. That's how cults draw people in. Their target is young people who are insecure, who come from broken homes where they're not loved, where they don't feel value, where they've been discarded, and they begin to give them what they need, but not to satisfy the need, to hook them in and control their lives and then hold them in there because if you break this, if you leave, then we'll reject you and they can't handle the rejection. So they'll give, they'll surrender their lives to a group of people that are meeting that fundamental need and yet they never can meet that need. So that's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the counterfeit that Satan uses. But he has to have bait. And his bait is designed to meet their need, at least to smell like it meets the need. And to look as if it meets the need. That's what alcohol does. That's what illicit sex does. That's what all the things that caught hook people in. What do they do? It hooks. What do we say? Oh, I'm hooked on drugs. And it's barb. The barb is what makes it hard to get off. It's easy, the barb is easy to go one way in the mouth, but because it's barb, it's painful to pull it out. And so the world offers 
the fish that are out there, a bait that smells as if it's going to satisfy them and meet their need so that they'll bite the hook. And once they bite the hook, it's very painful and difficult to get free again. So that must tell us something. If our, if our enemy is using bait to catch fish, how much more do we need bait to catch fish on a hook that will ultimately satisfy and the only thing that will satisfy that need and longing inside? What's that old song? That's not that old. What that song from a while ago? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing. There's not too little love. Popular song. Why? Because the world needs love. So what we have to offer them, the bait that's the true bait, that satisfies, the only thing that will satisfy them is to know that they're loved and accepted and have value. But I can't give them, a lo- give them my love, can't satisfy that need. It will help them. Your love can't satisfy that need. It will help them. There's only one love that can satisfy that need. Because it's only the one who made you who can satisfy that longing, that hunger, that thirsts that's down deep inside. That's what the woman at the well, as he began to talk to her, began to... She began to sniff something about him. I don't mean physically, spiritually. She began to... There's something about him that's different. There was something... When she went back to the town... She didn't still really understand who he was. She said, this is a prophet. Can he be? Because he told me things about me that nobody else knew. There's something different about him. There was something about Jesus that was different, that drew people. Well, he's the Son of God. Yeah, but it's just not the the Son of God because not everybody that recognized he was the Son of God was drawn to him. There was something about him that drew people. And that's the bait that we're going to talk about this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 3. You have to understand that before people can hear what you have to say, they have to know where they stand with you. Before people can hear what you have to say, they have to know where they stand with you. In marriage counseling, it's so interesting to watch this dynamic because you'll see a couple come in and sit down to talk to you. And one of them will start out with their list of issues, which is always about the other one. And in the process of going through that list of issues, the other at some point will respond about their issue back. And I'll listen to all this and, and, and at some point say, let me ask you a question. How long have you been married? Oh, 10 years, 15 years. All right. Why'd you marry her? I mean, did somebody make you marry her? Well, no. So you chose her. 
right? And, and, and you said yes to him, is that right? Now, what did you see about each other? Because what happened is they get in this antagonistic thing. And the more, and because they change how they see each other. So instead of seeing as somebody that loves and accepts them, they see the other person as the problem. So now they stake themselves out their position. And the more you stake it out, the more polarized, the more separated it gets. And that's where the world and the church is today. It's hard for them to hear what we have to say because they've got an image of where we're coming from that isn't all that attractive. Otherwise, it'd be full this morning. Jesus didn't do that. Did you find John chapter 3 yet? Okay. All right. We're just going to start in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 16. This is a story of Jesus' communication with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, comes to him and said, what, you know, basically what, you know, we understand that you must have come from God because nobody can do the things that you've done unless they come from God. And Jesus goes right to the issue. He talks about what it takes to be born again. He says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is having some trouble getting his mind around, how can I be born a second time? And Jesus is explaining to him, I'm not talking about your, a rebirth of your physical body. I'm talking about a birth of your spirit man on the inside. And then he gets into this verse that's so famous, John 3:16, For God so loved the world. So he what? He so what? Love. And what is it that we need? Love. For God so what? Love. And what is it we need? Love. For God so what? Love. And what do we need? Ah, okay. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we don't, we don't often go to the next verse. For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world. For God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. But what has the church by and large done? By and large, the church has told them you're all going to hell because you don't know Jesus. That's true. But we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the last verse, it said, it said that the, the letter of the truth kills. So you can be telling somebody the truth and kill them. It's an unbaited hook. But the spirit of the word gives life. And what is the spirit of the world? For God so loved. What is God? God is love. So in order to communicate Him, it must at the heart of it be love for them. For God so... See, we, we, mis, we misread things. I mean, we say the right words, but we interpret them in our mind. We read John 3.16 as saying, For God so loved the church. 
For God so loved Faith Christian Center. And He does. For God so loved me, you, and us, and nobody else. For God so loved the church that He gave His only... But when God so loved, there was no church. In fact, you are here today because He loved you before you you knew Him. So that means He loved you when you were unlovable. You may not be a whole lot more lovable now. But He loved you when you were not His child. I know we understand that intellectually here, but we can have an attitude in here that we don't realize. The heart of God is He loves people. Not just saved ones. Because if He just loved saved ones, He'd take us all out of here now. But He's left us here because He loves other people that aren't saved yet. And our job is to draw them to that love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. For God so loved the nastiest, meanest person you know. The person you're just hoping God gets. Fries him. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I might have to raise mine here. But has a thought ever gone through your mind, that person doesn't deserve to be saved? You know what? You're right. And neither did you, and neither did I. We come into the kingdom of God so conscious of His mercy, and then we get into a system by which we've got to do this right and that right, and there are things that need to change in our lives. And we, f- we forget that it's all by His mercy. When you get to heaven, you need to spend some time talking to Jonah. Because Jonah was a Jewish prophet, knew God, loved God, and God's call to his life was to go to Nineveh and preach a seven-word message. That's it. And he ran the other way. He wasn't running away from God. He was running away from what God would do if he preached that seven-word message, which was yet seven days. Basically, get your house in order, because in seven days you fry. And Jonah was concerned, because Nineveh was an evil city. One of the most evil, ungodly, cruel people that's ever lived. And his concern was that when he went through the city and preached this, if they repented, God might have mercy on them. So he didn't want God to have mercy on them, so he wasn't going to open his... He wasn't going to open his mouth. Because if he opened his mouth and they repented, God might have mercy on them. 
and they don't deserve his mercy. And we've talked about him. He went the other way. God had a way of getting his attention through a fish. And so Jonah comes back. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches the message. And sure enough, they repent. And God forgives them. And Jonah goes and pouts outside the city on a hill. And a tree grows up to give him shade. And the next day the tree dies and Jonah's in mourning, crying for this tree. And God speaks to him. He says, you care more about that dead tree than you do 600,000 souls that have just repented and been redeemed, let alone all their cattle. What is it we care about most? What's our treasure? Is it the same thing that God treasures? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. Well, there'll be judgment. Yeah, there's judgment coming. But he didn't send his son to the world to do it through him now. But that the world might be saved. That the world might be saved. Go to John chapter 12. Now John's been talking to his Jesus has been talking to his disciples here about the cost of discipleship. Verse 42. Nevertheless, among the rulers many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogues. So the many that believed in him, but they were more afraid of the Pharisees, so they wouldn't declare him openly. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And Jesus cried out and said, that, and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Let's stop there a second, because that's what, you've done, what he's done with you too. We've talked about that. He's put his treasure in earthen vessels. His glory, His love, His majesty, His peace, His joy, He's put in you and me. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He who believes in me believes not in me, but in Him who sent me. So we're here so that he'll be, people will believe in Him who sent us. And He who sees me Sees him who sent me. You know that while you're talking to somebody, they'll talk to you and say, you know, what do you do? You know, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a, an engineer, I'm an electrician, I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, factory worker, I'm a, you know, I'm a technician, I'm a clerk, I'm, you know, whatever it is. Okay. But the moment you mention Jesus, 
they don't see you anymore. Their reaction and response to you is based on what they think of Him. So when we open our mouth and say who we are in Him, then they now begin to see Him in us. And that's the whole thing we're talking about. We talked about the fact that you're adequate because it's not who you are or what you can do or what you know. It's Him in you that they need to see, that they need to taste, that they need to experience. And He's saying, he's saying even about Himself that it's not me that they're seeing. It's the Father in me. This is Jesus. Jesus was a witness of His Father, not of Himself. So Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he's saying here. That they would see, if they've seen me, they see Him. What they think of me is what they think of Him because that's who they're seeing in me. All right. Talking about the right bait. Verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He spoke the words. Some believed and some did not. He didn't get mad at those that didn't. He just spoke the word. Because He didn't come to judge them. Say, you didn't believe this, you're going to hell. He just spoke the word. Because he didn't come to condemn them. Then why do we think it's our job? Why does the church think that it's our responsibility to judge and condemn unbelievers, sinners, fish that we're called to catch? Why would a fish want to come to a barbed hook? told you the story last week of a woman that was a, 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 an author I've read, met on a street in New York, young girl, prostitute. But she came from a nice church family, grew up in church. And I don't remember what went wrong, but she left home. She got mad at her parents. They got mad at her. Whatever happened. She stormed out of the house. She left home, never to go back again. And she ended up on the streets of New York City, wanting to be free, wanting to go back, wanting to get out, wanting to help. And he said to her, well, why don't you go, why don't you go to church? She said, oh, that's the last place I'd go. Why? Because they judge me for where I've been. They judge me for where I've been. The church has been suckered into fights that we were never called to fight. Political fights, social fights, moral fights. We may be entirely right of our view. That's the hook. But what is there in the way we communicate it that would attract people to change what they believe? We're called as a church to catch fish, not establish principles. Yes, we're to declare the truth. 
Yes, we're to stand for what's righteous, but not to the point that we miss our main assignment, which is to reach people. And so we've gotten defensive and mad and upset about issues, playing, I believe, into the enemy's hands because now we become irrelevant. Where what's relevant is the love of God. I'm not saying we, you know, we, we compromise. I'm not, that's how we live our lives. I'm not saying that we don't stand up and, and you know, agree with what's right and what's righteous in God's eyes. But don't let us forget why we're here. A lot of that stuff went on when Jesus was on the face of the earth. And what did he do? He reached people in their needs. Getting quiet. For he did not come to the world to judge the world. Now, what, now, now what, let's keep on going because I want to show you something. Verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words, words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. There will be a judgment. But you and I are not the judges. The church is not the judge. The judgment will be, you heard the words of truth and rejected them. But that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to tell the words of truth in love. And what we're talking about this morning is, is sharing the truth in love. Because the church has been good at telling the truth, but not in such a way that attracts people to eat it. Let's look at Luke 19. a great story, the story of a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And we've talked about this before. This man's name was Zacchaeus. Tax collectors in those days, I mean, they're not highly regarded today. (laughs) But in those days, they were basically seen as Jews that had sold out to the Roman Empire. Because the Jews would, the, the Romans would take Jews that would agree to do this and, and, and say, you, you charge the people this much tax, but you've got the right to charge whatever you want. So whatever, whatever excess you charge, you can keep. Huh. And we license you to do that and we'll enforce it. So they were, not, they were seen as their own people who'd sold out to the Roman government, but not just that, but were taking advantage of them. This was a chief tax collector. And there's something about Jesus when he heard he was coming 
that caused him to want to see him. So much that he climbed up in a tree because he was short. And Jesus is passing by and there's this wonder, there's, there's a lot of noise and a lot of excitement as he passes by. And he looks up in this tree and he sees this short tax collector hanging out in a tree and he calls him down. That's got to have offended some of his disciples because they wonder, why are you talking to tax? At one point he went and ate with them. He's going to eat with them here. You know, why do you eat with tax collectors? Because they're fish. Where do you catch fish? Where they live. You got to go to the water to catch. They don't come to you. You got to go to them. Jesus is fishing. And he goes to the man's house. And people get mad because he's not washed up and clean. And Zacchaeus says, this is the sign something happened. He, goes, he says, Lord, I'm going to repay everybody I owe and I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. Now you know something's happened. Because he's given money freely on his own. Verse 9, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man... Has, not co- has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. And that's why he sends us. To seek and to save. Not judge. Fish smell. Right? But what would we do if a Sunday morning. Some of you ahead of me. <laughs> so people come. We hear a bunch of motorcycles out there. People come in here with long, scraggly hair. They may not smell so good. And they sit in your seat. You know the one God assigned to you? We had somebody almost leave the church once because somebody sat in their seat. <laughs> Need to read what James says about seating in church. Oh, yeah. what, 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 if, what if some people came in here that, that just didn't look like us or smell like us or know, what, you know quite how you're supposed to act in church? Would we want to put them in one side over here? Would we want to have the ushers take them out? Now, we don't want unruliness. We want order and discipline. But, but, you know, what would Jesus have done? Because remember, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We we can't, can't forget the goal. You can't forget the goal. And understand this, the enemy knows the goal. So he wants to distract you. He wants to get you mad, offended, upset about all kinds of things. So we forget the goal. 
which is to seek and to save that which is lost. This is his heart. This is his calling. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 John, we've looked at this before, that God is love. It's not that he's full of love. That's what he is. And if we are to be his witness, how can we be his witness if we're not ultimately at the foundation motivated by and communicating his love? We can be completely right about issues. We can be absolutely correct, completely sincere, and totally miss it if we don't come out of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, that's nothing. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, if I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it's nothing. If what I do for God isn't communicating His love, it's nothing. It's not that it falls short. It's nothing. That's talking about the gifts of the Spirit to a church that they were abundantly flowing in and Paul's trying to say, as impressed you are with how the Spirit flows through you and the gifts of the Spirit, here's how God sees it. Because it doesn't communicate Him. It's rotten bait. There's nothing about that that Draws the, touches the needs of the people around us unless it's communicating His love for them. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, which means our senses are aroused by something about Him that draws us to Him. Fish are drawn to the bait because they can smell it. They smell it. In fact, when I've watched them, they'll go around and sniff it to see if it's something that they want. And they may do that for a little while. And a wise fisherman just lets it sit there. They move it a little bit. Let's it sit there so the fish can continue to smell it to decide. See, there's some people in your life that have been smelling you. To see what you really are or what you really have. Is it something you only have on Sunday? Or is it something you also have on mind? What, what, what happens when things don't go well around you? What are they smelling? So the fish will go around the bait and smell it for a little while, make sure it's real, and make sure it's what, they're, what is going to satisfy their appetite. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Romans chapter 2. I'll turn there. 
It won't hurt us. Unless I get stuck in it. <laughs> and the interesting thing about Romans 2 is Romans 1 is all about that, that the world has no excuse for not believing in God. The reason they don't believe in God, the ones that, are, that have made up their mind, is that they don't want to. They'd rather worship the creation than the Creator because you can control the creation. If you have a Creator, then you've got to submit to Him and they don't want to submit. They want to be God themselves, which was the problem way back in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 2, though, is talking to Christians about judging them. Just be careful when you judge them because you're setting the standard by which God's going to judge you. Talk about mercy. Now look at verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now let's look at an example of this. Go to John chapter 8. It's just so neat because Jesus didn't just tell them to do things. He had them do things that he was doing. We've looked at a story in chapter 4 of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan he should not have been speaking with and a woman he should not have been speaking with. So he crossed cultural lines and racial lines to reach out to a person in need. That's God's heart. God doesn't see those barriers. We're the only ones that see them. Here we're going to see a different barrier. Jesus went up. Everyone had gone to his own house. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came out to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So he's teaching them in the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in his midst, and I don't believe that they brought a chair and had her sit down. <clears throat> My guess is they brought her in, I'm sure she didn't come willingly, and they dragged her in and threw her at his feet. That's my image that I got in my mind. This woman caught in adultery. Verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Now they're trying to catch him. Look at verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something by which to accuse him. So they're not here because they're trying to judge her because to help her get delivered from the sin. And they're not here trying to help him. They're trying to catch him. Now listen to this. What is it they're presenting to him? They're saying, the law says, this is what we must do. We know she's guilty. She was caught. Later on it's going to say, we caught her in the act. It wasn't rumor. We caught her. And if we throw her down, Moses is the law. So what they want to see him do 
is to violate the law of Moses because then they can distinguish him. They can say, don't listen to him because he violates the law of Moses and then they could even have him arrested. But why did they think he might do something like that? Why did they think this was going to be a, a test for him? Because if they already knew that his tendency was, hey, you're an adultery stoner. That's what it says. Go do it. Take the letter of what this thing says, and we've got to carry out exactly what it says. If that was his reputation, why would they have come testing him? They'd know that's what he was going to do. So there must have been something about him that he, they knew about him that this was going to challenge. What could it have been? It must have been they saw a mercy in him. They saw a compassion and a love in him that angered them because he wasn't keeping the letter of the law. He cared more about people than the letter of the law. At one point they got upset because he didn't observe the Sabbath because he broke the grain things off and ate them in the field with his disciples. And he says, was the Lord made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath made for the Lord? But there must have been something about him. I mean, children flock to him. Children don't flock to judgmental people. Children are drawn to people that are loving, caring, that are, that, are, that are there for them. There's something about this Son of God, this Messiah, this healer, the one that walked on water and spoke to storms and walked with all the power of God at His disposal, that somehow children will flock to Him. Why? There was something about Him. Care must have been caring. He was real. He was present to them. They wanted to be around him. Tax collectors wanted to be around him. So he had a reputation for being loving, gracious, merciful. And that's why they think they're going to catch him. So they throw her at his feet and say, The law of Moses says that for this offense you must stone her. By the way, the law of Moses also says you stone the guy too. So if they were so concerned about enforcing the law of Moses, where's the guy? Because the last I understood, <laughs> this they said, testing him, that they might have something to accuse him. But Jesus, you could never catch him. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, and the New King James says, as if he didn't even hear. And they continued asking him. They're pressing him. He raised himself up and said to him, All right, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. Now, under the law, the witness to the offense had the right to throw the first stone. And so that's what he's referring to. You know, it's a little side note here that's practical for us. They're trying to catch him. But they couldn't catch him. Why couldn't they catch him? Because he always 
did what his father told him to do. No more, no less. He only said what his father told him to say. No more, no less. So in order to trap him, they would have have to been able to trap God. Jesus at one point says, Satan could find nothing in me. He tried. There was nothing of Jesus he could get a hold of because Jesus only did what his father told him to do and only said what his father told him to say. So there was nothing of Jesus himself to get a hold of. The only part of you he can get a hold of and get upset is a part of you that isn't saying what God says and isn't doing what God's doing. That part's you. That he can get a hold of and that part he can trick. They couldn't trap him because he didn't invest himself in the issue. He just did what his father, represented his father in the issue. And so they couldn't, even at the point of his trial, when they're mocking him, they're slapping him. The only time he opens his mouth was to defend his father when Pilate says, don't you know the authority I have? I could have you thrown into prison. He says, you don't have any authority. My father didn't give you. And then shut his mouth again. They couldn't goad him. Paul they could, but they couldn't get Jesus. Because he was completely submitted to doing his father's will. Well, let's see what happens here. He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone, and then he again stoops down and writes in the ground. Those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. Now, notice what Jesus does. He, the issue, they, they, they talk about, oh, this is good. They're bringing her to him to be judged. Right? Jesus doesn't dispute that she deserves to be judged. Does he? The only issue he raises is who's got the right to do it. The issue there, this issue they're trying to present to him, this woman is guilty under the law. What are you going to do? You're going to be merciful to her and violate the law? Or you're going to enforce the law and everybody's going to know you're not merciful? And Jesus said, well, under the law, you can throw, you, she's to be stoned. Let's talk about who has the right to do it. He who is here in this setting, who's never committed sin, you get the right to throw the first stone. Now the interesting thing is there was somebody there who qualified. Jesus. So Jesus goes to the issue not of whether she deserves judgment, but of who has the right to do it. And all the ones that wanted it done confronted with the fact that they deserved it as much as she did 
slowly walk away, starting with the oldest who probably had the most to remember. (laughs) Now look what happens. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So I guess she was standing. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Then neither do I condemn you. But notice he doesn't stop there. Go and sin no more. He's not turning his head at the sin. He's talking about who's got the right to judge it. And he's giving her another chance. Go and sin no more. Do you think now she's motivated to not sin? She's tasted the goodness of the Lord. She's seen, a, she's seen someone stand up for her in the face of the religious people who want her judged, condemned, stoned, and buried. And she's seen a man stand up for her out of love and mercy and compassion of where she's been and what she's been through and stood up for her and her accusers have walked away in shame And now the Lord of the universe, the one who has a right to condemn her, forgives her and admonishes her, though, go and sin no more. Don't you think she's now motivated to change her life and live her life differently? Jesus had around him all kinds of people who had a track record. They were cracked pots. that lives were changed because they'd met the love and mercy of God that filled the need inside which had driven them into the things they'd gotten into before. And now they'd met the only one who could satisfy that, the true bait, that could satisfy them eternally. That's the living water he talked to the woman about at the well. If you drink of this water... It'll, you'll never be thirsty again. Everything inside of you that's longed in you to be, that's why you've had this messed up life you've had, will be satisfied by me. And you won't need all that stuff that you've used before to try to fill that need inside of you. One last thing. In Luke chapter 8, I'm not going to read it all really brings this into focus. No, it's not Luke chapter 8. It's a story of a woman... Jesus is in the house of the Pharisees and they're eating. The host is a man named Simon. And there's a woman that comes in and she's crying. 
And she starts, she has a, 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 a vase filled with precious oil. And she begins to anoint his feet with the oil and with her tears. And they're all upset. And one of them says, if, if he really were a prophet, he would understand what a sinner woman this is. And Jesus tells a little parable about two men that had different debts and one was forgiven $25 and the other was forgiven of $250,000. He says, which one do you think is more grateful? Well, the one forgiven of the greater amount. He says, that's right. See, because they were judging her for being a sinner, not recognizing that they were just as much, if not more in God's eyes, sinners than she was. What was there about him that drew her to want to come into a crowd, into someone's home where she knew she was going to be derided, laughed at, put down and not accepted and judged? What would draw her there unless it was the presence of someone that she knew would love her in the midst of her sin, accept her with her broken, destroyed life, and receive the gift that she wanted to give to him. And then he ends with this testimony. Because she's done this, this is going to be recorded forever in the Word of God. And it has been. Luke 7? Thank you. It's in Luke 7. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I believe part of how he wants to make us into fishers of men is to make us into bait. That when he puts it on the hook, they're going to be attracted to something about you and me because they're not going to see you and me. They're going to smell something about his love and acceptance for them in you and me. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, and we'll talk about this beginning next week, freely you've received, freely give. Freely he's loved you, accepted you where you are, lifted you up, freely give that love and acceptance to others. What is there about my life? What is it about the way I relate to people? What is it about the way I care for people? What is it about the way I talk to people? that it either attracts them to the gospel or offends them and drives them away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you've chosen us for this critical, most important responsibility to be used by you to touch and affect and change, that you may touch and affect and change the lives of people for whom you care so much. Continue to open our eyes to see how you see people and our ears to hear what you hear from their hearts and our hearts to be touched that we would feel what you feel towards people that you might through us give them a taste 
of your goodness and of your love and mercy. We pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us with that love, that mercy, that grace, that compassion that is yours so that we may do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.